Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Welcome back. I'm talking to Matt Grant, who is the owner of a company called Sailrite. They're located uh, in Indiana. And they've been around a long time because I know when I was building my boat uh, back in, oh, geez, I guess it was the early 90s, I explored the idea of making my own sails, and you were the one company out there that actually put together kits. And in fact, when I went online um, this summer, because I need some new sails for my boat, and I tried to get the dimensions online, your company actually had the dimensions for uh, my particular boat. But I've had, I've had quite a few people ask me to do more episodes on do-it-yourself, do-it-yourself topics. And uh, I wanted to reach out to Matt Matt, tell me about you and your company, and we'll start the interview. All right. All right. Great. Well, first I want to say uh, thank you very much for uh, uh, offering to talk to me and uh, talk about Sailrite. Uh, I love to talk about what we do here. Uh, the other thing is I'm thrilled to hear that you have people that are contacting you for uh, information on uh, DIY projects. Uh, obviously, that's what we know and love. Um, the, the business, uh, Sailrite, and I heard you refer to it as Sailrite Kits, and I actually haven't heard that in a while. Uh, we, we, we simply try and go by Sailrite or Sailrite Enterprises now, and the reason for that is that we, we think of ourselves, in the early days we were kits, and we were kits uh, primarily for uh, sailboat sales. And, uh, oh, probably in 1985 or so, uh, that was when my father, Jim, <laughs> wrote the Canvas Workers Guidebook. And that was really the po point where we decided that we were more than sail kits. We were also canvas work, and, and the name and logo morphed over the time into, into what we are now, which is really all DIY for canvas, sail, home upholstery, etc. Well, you're just dating me. That's what you're doing. You're just saying you go back way too far. So, we, Yeah, well, I, you know, this is a family business, so... It, it's sort of interesting. Uh, uh, my wife and I, which, by the way, I should also say uh, right up front that uh, this is a 50-50 a uh, type business relationship. Uh, my wife, Hallie, and myself own the business, and uh, we are definitely business partners. We each handle different aspects of the business, and each of us are certainly required for the things that we do. But uh, uh, myself in particular, since uh, I grew up in the business, I mean, I can remember when I was very, very young and we were uh, printing our own catalogs on AB Dick presses that uh, uh, if we made a typo or a mistake on something, you know, back in those days, we would we would print a, uh, a, uh, a correction and we would actually glue it to the page over top of the mistake. And, and uh, myself, my brother, and my sister spent many, many weekends uh, gluing corrections over uh, catalog copies and things like that that we did in the early days. So uh, I... I I uh, I remember an awful lot of odd things that we did that uh, uh, and see a lot of improvements in the way we handle things like that today. But uh, yeah, I've dated myself. <laughs> well, all right. Let's talk about what sort of 
projects, do-it-yourself projects you cater to for, with your business then? Yeah, yeah. Well, first thing, you're absolutely right. The, uh, the start of the business was all predicated on uh, you can build your own sales. And uh, that is an area of the business that we love, uh, but it's also an area of the business that is relatively small compared to everything else that we do. But we'll never stop doing it, um, and, we, and we do that in a much more complex manner than we had in the early days. Um, back in, in, uh, uh, when Jim first started offering sale kits, they basically came with a roll of fabric and a book, and you would uh, you know, use traditional drafting techniques to draft out a plan, which you would then transfer to a loft floor, and then you would drape the panels over it and build the broad seam into the end of the sails, which would create the three-dimensional shape for the sails. So very traditional sail making. Today we do it on an automated plotter system. Um, we have a 50-foot uh, cutter table, and the machine runs up and down the table and cuts the panels out according to the CAD um, design that we build for the sail. So uh, a lot more technical than it used to be. Now when somebody builds a sail, it's really just you've got a bunch of, uh, of pre-cut panels and you are following a set of instructions to assemble the sail. But that said, there are still far fewer people that are interested in building sails for their boats than those that are interested in doing repair work or making their own canvas items. So there what we're talking about is do I want a new mainsail cover for my sailboat? Do I need a new bridge uh, um, uh, cover or full enclosure uh, for my powerboat? Or do I need uh, uh, you know, a cover for my pontoon boat or speedboat? So pretty much all aspects of boat canvas, uh, we offer the materials for that. And then in order to entice our customers into uh, um, trying those projects, uh, we not only offer the appropriate tools uh, to do the job, uh, but we um, offer all kinds of free uh, video and written instruction that is designed uh, to show you the entire process and, uh, and hopefully convince those that are interested to take on the project and those that aren't interested, if they don't take on the project, at least we educate them a little bit in what we think are appropriate materials and they can have a more intelligent conversation uh, with their fabricator. But that's sort of the traditional a view of what Sailrite is and what sort of, sort of product, products that we handle. In the past couple years, we've gone more into upholstery and home decor type projects. So we're also offering materials and supplies for, you know, you want to redo your, your Lazy Boy recliner or your sofa, or you want to do the, uh, the curtains or drapes in your home. Um, uh, and, and we are just at the forefront of starting to offer uh, video projects to show you how to do those things as well. So uh, we are a canvas hardware store is what we really are uh, with all the information you need to figure out how to do it yourself. Now, do you get a lot into the upholstery fabrics as well or just the equipment to do upholstery? Um, we do both. Um, we do get into the upholstery fabrics as well. Um, we are carrying, uh, I mean, Sunbrella from Glen Raven is our core fabric line. But uh, if you're familiar with that fabric at all, I mean, it sort of started as the marine premium fabric for fade resistance and uh, uh, UV resistance and color fastness and cleanability and, you know, everything you needed to build a boat top. Um, but they have also changed as we have over the years, and they still offer that wonderful fabric for outdoor purposes, but they've, they've seen this huge movement and growth in, uh, in indoor 
uh, or furniture fabrics, if you will. And, uh, and they have started to take what they know about outdoor fabrics and build a, a very complete line of furniture fabric. And that gives us the ability to use premium performance fabrics like that for upholstery purposes. But we also pick up other lines because Glenraven or Sunbrella is not the only game in town. There are people like uh, Giabella from Pfeiffer and uh, Waverly, which a lot of people are familiar with, and P. Kaufman and uh, Covington, lots of different mills out there that produce different types and different fibers or fiber compositions of fabric that are still appropriate for uh, upholstery, whether it's indoor or outdoor or both. And what we see our job is to sort of uh, differentiate between those different lines and sort of call out which are the premiums, which maybe are the mid-grade and which are sort of the entry level. And then we, in DIY, uh, the important thing to do is to help your consumers understand which one is maybe more appropriate for what they're doing and making a value judgment on their own as to whether they want to spend the money on a premium performance fabric or whether they want to buy something for a first-time project just to get it done, and then maybe they want to recover it in the next two or three years, and that's all the better durability they need out of the fabric. So, uh, yeah, we, we do offer an enormous complement of upholstery fabric. And if you don't want to buy the fabric from us for upholstery purposes, you can still certainly go elsewhere, but we want to give you the tools and the know-how how to do it. And uh, if you value what we're offering here at Sailrite, we hope that uh, uh, you'll certainly stick with us in one way or another, whether it's just uh, uh, listening and watching our content or whether it's uh, uh, buying everything from tools and the, the fabric you need to do the job. So we want to cover the whole whole gambit. I guess we should clarify that this is not a paid ad. I, I called, I reached out to you to ask you to tell me about your company. So this is not an advertisement. You're, you, yeah, it's an advertisement for your company, but I think you're providing a valuable service to, to do it yourselfers. So I wanted to explore what you're doing. Now let's just talk about, and this is sort of where I started out at when I was building my boat. I thought, okay, make winch covers, you know, just something simple like making some winch covers or some um, simple covers like that. If, you're, if somebody's just starting down this path, what would you suggest as uh, a good starting point to start exploring doing some of your own projects, sure. fabric projects? Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, great question. And uh, actually, winch covers would be a, a very simple project for somebody to start with. I think the first thing that I like to tell people is that uh, you don't have to invest a lot of money in equipment to start with. Uh, almost everybody I know either has an old home sewing machine or they have access to a sewing machine. And uh, there's nothing wrong with starting with a home sewing machine uh, to, to start doing some of these projects. And uh, this is the same as any hobby. Um, what happens is you get started. If you enjoy what you're doing and you're satisfied by the results of the project, uh, you will end up doing more of it, and at some point you get to a point where you say, okay, now I need to buy the tools that I really want in order to do this in a very proficient manner. And and we see ourselves at every level of that that uh, uh, progression, the uh, buying process. So if, if you want to start with a simple something as simple as, as winch kits, winch cover kits, we have that, maybe a Fordic bag kit if you've got a small sailboat without a furling head sail. Or, you know, mainsail cover is a great one to start with because it's a very simple project and you don't get into much more than four layers of fabric. So just about any home sewing machine can handle uh, that thickness of sunbrella material. Uh, those are projects that uh, you can buy a kit relatively inexpensively. Um, 
instructions are beginning to end, and that's really sort of the value proposition that we offer there. We put these kits together so that uh, you don't have to think about what do I need besides my common tools like a pair of scissors and uh, perhaps a screwdriver and pliers and, and a home sewing machine. Uh, so, yeah, you can start off very easily with some simple kit projects, and by the time you've done one of those, you're either going to say this was a lot of fun and, uh, and why I got something that's great out of it, or you're going to say, I don't want to touch that again, or I don't like sewing machines or whatnot, but, uh, uh, we, 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 we want to empower you in any which way we can through our educational resources to help you get the job done. And then our lifetime goal here is to, uh, help you, uh, save time and, uh, uh, to, uh, um, have overall value savings when it that come the overall value savings that come with uh, do-it-yourself type projects. So, uh, but yeah, the, that type of a project is a great starting point. Let me ask you a question on threads. I've got a, a mainsail cover, and it's it's an old mainsail cover, and the canvas is uh, you know doing it's holding up well. The canvas is holding up well, and it's umbrella canvas. And but the th- the stitching keeps the the thread keeps deteriorating, so I keep having to have it restitched. Now I've heard, and maybe you can confirm this for me or not, that if you do your projects with different types of threads, different threads have different resistance to UV. So, so and I think what was I thinking? A, a type of thread. Uh, what is it? Uh, the water. Probably Tenera or tef- a Teflon-based thread lifetime thread would be there are a number of brands out there okay so when i've done it with basic dacron thread i think i've done it in the past polyester would be your standard which is yeah a dacron type equivalent correct right so the other threads will last longer if you can specify those threads thread is a really complicated uh, uh, discussion actually we could probably have an hour podcast (laughs) just on thread uh, but i'll try and make it as simple as possible so uh, you're going to get out of a polyester thread, uh, let's say you're in Florida uh, and your boat is out year-round, you're going to get probably two to three years out of a UV-treated and bonded polyester thread. And uh, you can change that a little bit by using a heavier denier thread, so a larger diameter to the thread. Obviously, there's more meat in the thread there for it to, to degrade over time. Uh, so it can last longer. So you go up to something like we call a, a V92 or a V138 thread, and that type of polyester thread, you might get into the the, the three three to four year uh, life range uh, for that thread. But that's typical of of a uh, of a polyester thread that's out in the sun all the time. Uh, Sunbrella, in particular, since you named that one, is made out of acrylic. And acrylic fibers will last much longer in the sun than polyester, which is why your material doesn't wear out. It's also why Sunbrella can put a 10-year warranty on their marine-grade fabric and pretty much expect that it's going gonna, it's gonna to last that long. So, yeah, you're right. You're going to lose your thread. You're going to lose your zippers. Uh, you might lose some plastic hardware uh, on your covers uh, that, that can be replaced probably multiple times before you have to discard the fabric. But in the way of thread... Uh, you do have some options. Um, you can spend a lot more money on a thread and uh, get a PTFE thread, which is uh, uh, similar uh, to uh, Teflon, and uh, uh, it is a Teflon, um, and uh, that thread will last the lifetime of the canvas without question. You just spend a lot more for the thread, and because Teflon is slippery by nature, 
it's also a little bit harder to sew. So some sewing machines have a problem, hard time creating a loop for the hook to pick up the thread. Uh, but there are probably half a dozen, maybe more brands of Teflon thread out there, and we carry a couple of them. Uh, Tenera by Gore-Tex is by far the uh, the leader in that market uh, uh, because it's uh, and they were really the uh, innovator of that type of thread. Um, we carry Profilin as well, uh, which works in our opinion better on oscillating hook sewing machines, which is what we push for our ultra feed line of sewing machines. But um, uh, that thread will last. So if you can justify that additional expense, it's a good way to go. We often tell our more seasoned customers. Uh, in, in more uh, of the environment and the climate that you would have in, in Florida or the tropics that uh, it is well worth spending the extra to get uh, uh, a PTF e-thread. Um, but polyester thread is probably what 90% of our customers use, and you are absolutely correct that after uh, a n number of years in use, they are going to have to re-sew, especially if it's a canvas item that is exposed all the time. So is there a huge difference in the price of polyester versus the other threads? Yeah, there is. Um, so let's let's talk profilin because I sell that in four-ounce cones. So profilin cone of thread right now is, uh, I think it's $69 uh, for a cone. You can buy a, um, a four-ounce cone of a, an equivalent size polyester thread uh, for around $13, $14 a cone. So it's a... It's a decent difference, but thread is such a, I mean, it doesn't take a lot of thread to do larger projects. So in the grand scheme of things, um, I think that uh, uh, thread like Tenera and Profilin is highly underutilized in the marketplace. Um, I would like to see a lot more of our customers using it. Uh, in the past, the problem with that was that we didn't have smaller cones than 8 ounces. So if you if you uh, if you look at our 2015 catalog, you'll see that Canera is in there at an eight ounce cone, and there's nothing smaller. And you're going to spend 130 bucks or so for an eight ounce cone of that thread, which is a bigger buying decision than 69 dollars. Uh, this year or this coming year for 2016 will be the first year that we're bringing in four ounce cones of the uh, profilin thread, and we are really expecting that that will help to. Uh, stimulate uh, our customer base to use that thread for more routine type projects. But I also want to make it clear that there are certainly projects. It's not a it's not a one one thread for all use um, um, situation. I would not want to use a Tenera or a Profilin uh, or any of the other varieties of that type of thread, lifetime thread, I'll call it, uh, for something like boat cushions because the thread is largely concealed. In the in the edges of the uh, of the cushions, you don't see it exposed like you do a top stitch, uh, or if we were doing the interior cushions, or even if you're doing something like a um, um, a sail or a uh, an awning that is not exposed all of the time. In those situations, your your you know your two to four year lifespan is greatly increased by the fact that it's just not something that's left out in the sun all the time. And there are some other things like if you're doing interior upholstery work, you might want more stretch to the thread if you're using a stretchy type uh, upholstery fabric. And then you should go with something like a nylon, uh, which uh, uh, has very strong strength to it, uh, but it also has a uh, 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 much uh, uh, less of a modulus, which means that it will stretch and, and recover more 
than a, uh, a thread like a polyester or even a, a, a Tenera or Profilin. So there are, there are different requirements um, based upon the project as well. So let's talk about sails. Uh, I've got an old, you know, my sails on my boat are original, so they're, <laughs> they're, they're 15 years old. And my main sail, I'm starting to see the thread break in spots. Okay, I haven't had a, a seam split on me because it was triple stitched to begin with. And would if you were going to build cruising sails that you wanted to last a long time, would you go with a Tenera th- thread or would you stay with polyester? You know, um, uh, not too long ago, uh, Gore-Tex, uh, uh, the maker of Tenera, said that uh, Tenera thread was not guaranteed for life in sailcloth, uh, which was part of the reason that it never made much inroads into that particular area. But um, recently, they have become much wiser with the potential uses for the material or the thread, and they recognize that there's absolutely no reason in the world you couldn't use it for sales. So we are seeing a lot more of that thread being used for sail making, and uh, I think it is a good use for it. Um, I, as, in particular, I would say if we were talking a, a furling head sail, and it, where you have you know the the sunbrella sunband on the the leech and the foot edge of the sail, that would be an obvious area where use of a Tenera thread or a Profilin thread would be completely appropriate. Um, if we're talking about um, uh, the seams of the sail, uh, I still think uh, if we're talking a significant sized offshore cruising sail, uh, that uh, use of that thread uh, would make very good sense. And you're absolutely right that uh, restitching of sails uh, is uh, something that uh, just happens uh, no matter what you're doing. But I think the other thing that we should talk about there is, is that um, the, fa- the sailcloth itself is Dacron, or, which is essentially DuPont's uh, brand uh, for polyester. So if you sew a sail with uh, a, a Tenera thread, for instance, you're really putting a fiber in the way of the thread that will last much longer than the core material that the sail's made out of. So the only argument against doing that I could think of would be as long as you're using a heavy enough polyester thread, um, Theoretically speaking, you've got equivalent or similar life between the material and the thread for seaming purposes. But once again, I would I would certainly agree that for a sacrificial uh, cover on a head sail, uh, where you are covering the the Dacron sailcloth with something like Sunbrella anyway, there is a perfect application for the Tenera thread. But I certainly have no qualms with using the Tenera thread uh, for seaming as well. I just think it might be a touch overkill. But overkill is never a bad thing. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the sail cover, the uh, jib sail cover, the roller furling cover. That is something I've had to replace. And it is exactly for that reason is the threads, de- you know, the thread deteriorated. And and therefore the sunbrella fell apart. And, I, and it's an expensive fix. And it seems like, sure, thread might be a little more expensive. But, you know, you're eliminating right. problems right. down the road. Yeah, and let me get on my uh, jump to a sales pitch on that one for you. You open open the door on that. Uh, the the, uh, uh, the one of the biggest problems and one of the best reasons to to become a DIY uh, a sewer when it when it comes to boating is that let's say that your threads start to rot away on a sacrificial cover, and you don't catch it early enough, or you just think I'm I'm not taking the sail down. I'm not going to take this to the sailmaker right now, and you let it go. That's when a small repair project turns into a huge repair project and a lot of expense. So 
if you have the equipment on board, like a sewing machine, and you have the thread that you need in order to do these repairs yourself, uh, you can actually save yourself a ton of money in the long run just by addressing those issues when they're first noticed as opposed to waiting until the end of the season and, and finding you've got a much bigger nut to crack. Well, let's talk about sewing machines for a few minutes. I know that's one of the um, areas that you you um, you have a good claim to fame on that. But when I've done my projects, fortunately for me, I've got a friend that owns a, a canvas shop uh, in Salt Lake City. And he says, oh, anytime you want to do a project, come down here and use my commercial machines. And he's got the big zigzag machines, and he's got the straight stitch machines, and he's got the double needle machines, and then he's got the walking foot machines. And, and I'll go down there, and he'll teach me how to, and it, it only lasts for one day, he'll teach me how to thread the machine and, and go to work on it. And my biggest complaint on these commercial machines is I can't feed the material through slowly enough. I mean, they, they grab the material and slip it through, I mean, because they're in a commercial operation, and I... I don't have the ability to control <laughs> my feed that well. And so my complaint on the commercial machines is that they're too fast. I want to go slower. I want to be able to feed the material in and control where the stitches are going. And my stitches are big S's because it's going so fast. Uh, talk to me about your sewing machines. You've got several models, and let's talk about the different ones. Sure, sure. Yeah, the... Uh, uh... I know exactly what you're talking about, and there there are a couple different types of uh, consumers out there. There are people who have sewn a long time and have done a lot of work, and they need to go fast because they get bored, and they're good enough that they can control that type of speed. Uh, and then there are those of us, and I include myself in this category, that want to go very slowly and do it in a very precise manner and, uh, uh, and don't want to feel like we're going to sew our fingers off. Uh, and we want to do it with a lot of power so that we're not constantly having to use one hand to grab the flywheel to turn the, the needle through the fabric. Uh, so uh, our position has been uh, let's uh, go after not that customer that needs to sew at 3,000 stitches per minute, but we want the guy that's interested in sewing from zero to maybe 800 stitches per minute top speed and perhaps in the sweet spot at three to 400 stitches per minute. And uh, so what we've done is we have... Uh, 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 spent a lot of time and energy uh, um, gearing uh, sewing machines and using appropriate motor systems on sewing machines in order to reduce the speed, uh, but also gear to increase the power of, of needle penetration so that we can make things as easy as possible for uh, uh, somebody who is an amateur sewer. Uh, so uh, whether we talk about our entry level, which is the UltraFeed LS1, which is straight stitch only, or we talk about our most popular machine, which is the LSZ one, which is the blue one, and it's straight and zigzag. Or we start to go into more of our professional, non-portable line of sewing machines, like the uh, Sailrite 111, the Big and Tall, and uh, and indeed even the Professional Series. Um, on all in all cases, um, we don't really offer a machine that runs much faster than a thousand to fifteen hundred stitches per minute. And, uh, and in all cases, we have options that allow you to go significantly slower than that at variable speed. So uh, well, we do certainly consider uh, power uh, and speed uh, to be important aspects of what we're offering, um, and, uh, and, and we design our equipment accordingly. So for a portable machine that could fit on a boat, does it run on uh, on 12 volts, or is it? Uh, do you need an inverter to run it on 110 volts? Is that the LSZ one 
are the, I'm looking at your website as we're talking, so I'm just looking at the uh, sewing machines. So yeah, so the red one is the LS one, and then the LSZ one it would be the uh, blue machine, and, and the blue machine is the most versatile of the portable line because it gives you both zigzag and straight stitch, whereas the the red one is straight stitch only. So if we have a customer who only wants to do canvas work, uh, we we or upholstery work, then the uh, straight stitch only is is fine. Uh, but we are primarily catering to sailors, and as a result of that, most sailors. Uh, um, are interested in having zigzag stitch for the purposes of sail repair or perhaps even making their own sail. Um, if, if they never do it, they still have the straight stitch capability for most of their canvas work. But uh, yeah, that, uh, that blue machine uh, is, uh, and we offer that in three different flavors, a basic, a plus, and a premium. Uh, and they're, they're, it's the exact same machine between the three lines. They're just different cases and different feature options that come on on what I'll call good, better, best, but keep in mind that the core is excellent, which is the uh, the head itself. Tell me how you developed that machine then. Uh, that machine is uh, uh, was developed over uh, a number of years with lots of experience on different machines and, and ultimately coming up with a uh, 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 a list of desirables that resulted in in a recipe that uh, uh, ultimately turned into the ultra feed. Um, our, by the name, um, you can probably tell that one of our number one goals was to develop a machine that had terrific feeding capability. Uh, and with feeding capability, we needed stitch length because if you are going to be doing canvas work, you really want as long of a stitch length as possible especially to handle heavier threads and to reduce needle pucker and canvas work, which is just the simple phenomenon of uh, every time the needle enters sunbrella fabric, it has a tendency to shrink the material in that area. Uh, so uh, uh, longer stitch lengths reduce that. And of course, professionals are using longer stitch lengths, so we wanted a portable smaller machine for our amateur customers that could match uh, what you would expect out of a professional stitch from a full-size machine. Uh, but um, uh, my father started selling sewing machines uh, way back in, uh, well, it was before before the Sailmaker, which I think the first Sailmaker sewing machine that we offered, which was based on a Brother 652 head, I think that was offered in the early 80s, probably 80, 81. And uh, uh, prior to that, he had sold everything from the old Reed, old Reed Sailmaker, which still a lot of people uh, know about or have heard that name and uh, even some old uh, Conso full-size industrial machines and, and a lot of home sewing machines like the FOF 130 and the FOF, FOF 138, which is a more industrial version of a FOF. But uh, he was doing a lot of this, this work as a DIY sewer for his own purposes, even before the business became what it, it ultimately did. And uh, his hobby, which really what is what it was, uh, grew into what Sailrite is today, but uh, all of that uh, knowledge that he gained from working on those sewing machines uh, resulted in that Sailrite Sailmaker um, in the early 80s, and it was based on a Brother 652 head, which was a, uh, a three-quarter arm industrial head, they call it. Three-quarter meaning it was three-quarters the length of a standard industrial head, which made it a possible candidate for turning into a portable machine. So uh, uh, Jim... Uh, turned it into a portable machine, found a motor that would work with that machine, uh, created uh, things like jack drives and oversized flywheels in order to gear the machine for power, 
and uh, ultimately turned it into the sewing machine that really became sort of our flagship flagship sewing machine for years and years um, that uh, uh, was perfectly suited for uh, uh, sailors doing sail and canvas work. The problem is is that uh, it, it got to be fairly pricey. Um, when we last sold that machine, it sold for, I believe, $19.99, so nearly $2,000. And um, that was hampering uh, growing that market uh, because the, it was a great machine, but price was not really what it needed to be. Uh, and that was in the in the 90s. Um, uh, so we, uh, and this is about when I came into the business, um, uh, I had uh, theorized that uh, a smaller machine would increase not only our, uh, our sewing machine sales, uh, but that it would also um, drastically increase the sales of anything and everything else that was related to sewing. And we came up with the Yachtsman at that time, which was really my first um, uh, uh, what do I want to say? My first uh, attempt at uh, creating a sewing machine for our customer base at the time, which is very much the same customer base that we have now, apart from the home side that we've added. But it was a smaller machine based on an old Recar head, so sort of the cast iron Model T of home sewing machines. And we uh, we built up on that platform by putting a larger motor on it. You know, doing all of the same sort of gearing that my father had. Uh, uh, worked out earlier on the Sailrite Sailmaker, and uh, uh, increasing springing of the machine for more pressure, pressure foot tension, and a whole host of things like that that would make. And we even created a special feed dog for the machine, so we were doing some metal work and CNC machining of parts for the machine. And it was a good machine. It was in the uh, $500 range, and uh, uh, worked very well. But uh, there were limits. Uh, to its capabilities, and we had a number of customers that were were finding those limits. If you were trying to do a sail repair on a on a corner of a 40-foot boat, uh, that's a lot to ask a small machine like that to do. That really started with its origins as a standard home sewing machine that's just beefed up. So, great great approach. But what it taught us is it taught us everything that you could imagine about what could break on a sewing machine and what needed to be improved. And, I mean, obviously those core things were always more power, more feeding capability, thus that name Ultrafeed, uh, stronger, more robust parts, a more robust casting, uh, longer stitch lengths. You know, how do we get better feeding? That, that, that walking foot design that we built onto the Ultrafeed. So at that point we started looking at uh, uh, walking foot type mechanisms. And uh, Okay, let me, stop uh, you. let me stop you right there because... You're throwing out terms that maybe some of our pe- people, our listeners, don't understand. I know what a sure. walking foot machine is, but explain what a walking foot machine is. Okay. So walking a standard sewing machine that you would think of for a home sewing machine is a drop feed mechanism, and that means that you've got simply a feed dog on the underside of the fabric. It's usually a knurled surface that uh, that moves in a semi-oval-type ov- uh, pattern. And, uh, or rectangular pattern, if you will. And when it comes up through the holes in the needle plate, it engages the fabric and pulls the fabric through. And the top, what's holding the material down on that feed dog is simply a sled foot. So what you think of when you think of a standard sewing machine foot. So you have feeding only from the bottom side of the fabric, and you have a sled foot on the top that slides along the top surface of the fabric. So the problem with that is, is that uh, you're pushing the top layer and you're pulling the bottom layer of fabric. So 
uh, they're sort of working contrary to one another, and as a result, when you get into larger, heavier projects, uh, uh, it, it, it doesn't feed as well as it could if you were trying to grip the material from both the top and the bottom. So what a walking foot gives you is it gives you a feed dog very similar to what I just described on the bottom, but it also gives you a two-part upper foot assembly where there's a presser foot that is doing the holding down of the fabric, and then there is a walking foot that moves in in uh, um, uh, coordination with the feed dog in order to release, move forward, and then come together, grip the fabric, and then pull the fabric back, and then repeat that cycle over and over again. So uh, you really do get much more effective feeding by having a walking foot than you do a, a drop feed mechanism. So this is not a needle feed. That's different, right? Yeah, a needle feed or a compound feed uh, is a variant of a walking foot machine where uh, uh, the uh, the center foot actually becomes the walking foot instead of the presser foot, and the outer foot becomes the presser foot. So, But it's still a two-part foot design. But now you have a needle bar frame that moves forward and back with the walking foot. So when the foot uh, engages the feeder on the bottom side, the needle is also through the fabric. So now you have two feet pulling and you have a needle uh, engaged in the fabric that is pulling the fabric back. Um, I, I will say uh, that that is a, it sounds like a great concept and it is for certain applications, but if we get really technical about the differences between a walking foot and a compound feed mechanism, uh, what you will find in the end is that a compound feeder is a fantastic mechanism for canvas work and especially jobs where you're sewing through fairly consistent thicknesses of material. But when you get into stepped layers where uh, um, you know the foot has to climb from two to eight and climb off of eight to two or, or something like that in thicker materials, you'll find that when you reach those stepped areas that the feeding actually is, is not as good as just a standard walking foot. Uh, so for varied thickness of, uh, or for versatility, I prefer a walking foot. For more commercial applications, I prefer the compound feed. Um, and then the other, the other thing that I would like to throw in there is that you cannot have a compound feed zigzag. There is no such thing. Uh, so if, if we throw zigzag into the equation, you're always talking standard walking foot. And the reason for that is obviously uh, with a compound feed, you have to have an aperture in the needle plate. So the hole in the needle plate that's not only going to allow uh, for the needle entry front to back, but also left to right. So uh, you would have to have a, a large box opening in the, the needle plate in order to allow for compound feed with zigzag to handle the, the width of the zigzag stitch. And that's not going to work because now I have nothing holding the fabric down around where the needle enters the material. And as a result, uh, I won't create a loop on the underside of the machine for the hook to catch. So that was a very technical, probably over, over the top of what most people understand. But I think it suffices it to say compound feed can be a great thing in production uh, for straight stitch machines. For zigzag machines, the best you can get is the, the walking foot. But there are definitely those, those three distinct uh, uh, mechanisms that we see in our industry. So you actually manufacture your own sewing machine, is that correct? Uh, we, we, we do, um, and, and I should explain what that means. So what we do is uh, uh, we, uh, we have many components made in a variety of different spots, 
and uh, uh, the primary casting for our machine and uh, most of the internal parts uh, are made for us in China uh, by a very well-respected uh, uh, and large uh, uh, factory, and uh, and they do an excellent job for us, and they they work with us exceptionally well. So uh, uh, we actually control. Uh, the process of what is is made for us, and we tweak and make changes to the design of the machine as are needed throughout the years in order to continuously improve the product because uh, continuous improvement is important to us the uh, uh, but when the machines come in here to the states, uh, so we bring them in, in in container loads, and when they come to the states, it is not a sewing machine. it is a roughly assembled head. And uh, uh, they don't include motors, they don't include cases, they don't include uh, a whole host of things, they don't include some of the parts that are necessary for the machine even to function as a machine. Uh, when th- so we bring in every th- motors, for instance, come from Taiwan, cases are made in the United States, flywheels are made in the United States, posi pin uh, components are made in the United States. Uh, uh, we bring all of those things together, and then uh, uh, we have an assembly um, uh, uh, facility uh, here in Indiana, and uh, I have a group of, I think we've got five guys in there now, and all they do is uh, put machines together, and then and then the most important thing that they do is they are tuners, and they are really good tuners, and uh, what that means is that they set all of the cams, they do all of the timing of the machine, they make sure that everything on those machines is set up so that they will perform at the very top of their capabilities. And um, uh, when we're done with it, uh, we box them here and, you know, put our instructions and our DVDs in there and, uh, and then provide full support. It is a complete sale-right product. So for sewing machines, it's really about as close as you get to made in the United States. Um, uh, just about everything else out there comes into, the, into a facility in the States in a box and goes out the door from that distribution center in a box and you get what was produced for you wherever it was produced. Um, we are we are in complete control of this product, and it's the only way I would do it, and it's also the best way to do it because it means that we are completely capable of providing full support for the product and uh, and helping our customers make effective use of these machines. I see you offer two twenty volts and one ten volt machines. Do you sell a lot to European customers? Yeah, we do. We do. Um, I am amazed at how much we send out the door here uh, outside of the United States. So, uh, uh, and it's a it's a market that we constantly look at. What do we need to do to grow that? It's an area that we have not invested a lot of time or money in. Um, it's just sort of grown uh, uh, on its own. Uh, but uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, the extent of what we have done at this point is we just say if we have a product that we know is going to do well. We'll offer it in 220 volt, and we have that clientele out there that will purchase it. But that speaks to the uniqueness of the machine. Um, it really is a unique product, and it's a unique level of support that we offer for it. And uh, uh, customers, uh, uh, not just in the states, but there are obviously sailors, sailors around the world who recognize that uh, uh, it certainly uh, fills a need in the marketplace. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, we do a lot of. 220 volt machines. Now, is the only difference just the uh, the motor on the on the machine? Then it, it's the the motor uh, and the foot control. So, and we do get that question a lot. I mean, at the Annapolis Boat Show this year, I think I had that question four or five times. And and then we have a lot of customers. You know, people are. Oh, we lost Matt. 
I may cut this and make this as a podcast, and I may get him back to continue on with the questions, but I've tried to call him back on the other line, on the landline, and I can't get through to the company. So there's something wrong at their end with the phone lines. So we'll leave it there, and I'll come back and try to get another interview with Matt later on. There's sort of a cliche in the sailing community about the dream of sailing versus the reality of sailing. Sailing is romantic. The idea of sailing along in tropical breezes on a broad reach, clear sky, blue water, it's very enticing and very romantic. And so that's why the story persists of the farmer who sells the farm and buys a boat. He and his wife get on the boat in California, sail to Hawaii and get off the boat sell the boat, go back and buy the farm again. The romance of sailing and the reality of sailing are totally different. And before you get too absorbed in the romance of sailing, let me suggest that you take some time and actually do some long-distance sailing before you sell everything and buy the boat and go sailing. I personally have a few friends that have have sold the house, bought the boat, gone sailing. And, and then it wasn't what they expected it to be. So before you buy the dream, drink the Kool-Aid, get some offshore experience. Andy Shell at 59 degrees north does offer some time out on a boat. But there's other ways to get that same experience. And I've talked in the past of just start sailing, get on a racing crew. Wherever you're at, learn the ropes. Learn that it's not all tropical breeze sailing, trade wind sailing. Learn that sometimes you have to beat into the wind, and sometimes those waves are going to be miserable. And you might have a tendency to become seasick. But along the way, get some sailing experience. And I don't care how you do it, but get some sailing experience. Get some, get some sea miles under you. Find out if you really enjoy it. A long time ago, I had the opportunity to fly a small plane. I owned a business and we had to spot brine shrimp eggs from the sky. So I hired a pilot and a plane and I would go up with them and spot the brine shrimp eggs and radio down the location to our crew that was on the water and they would go round up the brine shrimp eggs. This is on Great Salt Lake. And my pilot was also an instructor. So I said, well, as long as I'm paying for the plane and you, let's give me some lessons. So I had about 20 hours of lessons of flying. There was a time when I thought I would want to be a pilot. And after about 20 hours of lessons, I thought, well, this is fun, but it's not my passion. But I had the opportunity to discover that before I spent too much money. The money I spent, I was spending anyway. So anyway, before you become a sailor, you have to learn the terminology. And I have a series of lessons in my audiobook, Sailing, Learn to Sail, Basic Keelboat Certification, Lessons for the ASA 101 exam. This is the first of the ASA exams, and it's similar to the Royal Yacht Association exams for sailing. In fact, I may modify it and do the same thing for the Royal Yacht Association for their written exam as well, because the material is very similar. But learn the terminology, learn the basic techniques of sailing, and then go get on a boat, and you'll be much further ahead, at least having listened to that audio lesson. Also, pick up some books, look at diagrams. That helps a lot in visualizing what you're going to be doing on the water.
You can find this course at the website medsailor.com. It's $29.99. Joe, do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know? Thank <laughs> you.